Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Trusted Tech Talks podcast. I'm your host, Manny, and I'm joined by Jazz China, CTO at Cinch, to discuss his journey into tech and from taking Cinch from a startup to one of the fastest growing businesses in the UK. It's great to have you on, on the podcast, Jazz. First of all, if you could do an intro to yourself, that'd be great for the listeners. Sure. Um, thank you for having me, Manny. I'm Technology Director. I work for the Constellation Automated Group. I was effectively the CTO for Cinch uh, there for pretty much the beginning when there were only a handful of people in the room to uh, 200, 250 plus. So I, I was involved in the whole bootstrap to start up and then epic scale-up journey that Cinch went through. I've since moved away from my day-to-day responsibilities at Cinch. Now I work with other divisions in the group. I would probably describe myself as a technologist at heart with a strong focus on product development. I would consider myself as somebody that's able to marry business strategy with technology strategy and most importantly, execute at scale. Um, I would consider myself as a team builder, somebody that's very people and culture focused. And I think that's I think that's very important. I've worked in small businesses, run large group functions, run my own startups, worked tech due diligence, product due diligence for private equity companies and everything in between for the last 18 years. Um, I'd like to think I've got a very unique set of experiences that give me a unique perspective, but you know, every day I'm learning something new, mostly about how little I know and how much more I need to learn. So uh, yeah, I think that's me in a nutshell. No, that's great, Jazz. Like I, I've known you for quite a few years and I, I know of your journey. Now, obviously, Cinch is not just the household name in the Northwest, but it is across the UK. Um, but Obviously, people know of you from working there most recently. However, what I always like to start off with is just how did you get into the tech market? Because there must have been a spark. There must have been something that got you there. And I'm always interested to learn. Yeah, that's a good question. So about 25, 26 years ago, 95, 96. I'm not really that old. I'm actually 21, but that's just for the purposes of this conversation 25 26 years ago yeah uh, you know most modern personal computers were becoming mainstream and my my dad did what most dads in those days did which was go out and spend loads of money on a personal computer ours was a packard dell and loads of other peripherals like a printer and everything else and then just put it on a desk somewhere and and, and watch it collect dust and that was it and none of us really knew what to use it for, other than to play solitaire and listening to MP3s on Winamp. Remember Winamp? It really kicks no, yeah. I can't remember that. Can you not? That was uh, that was great. Anyone who's listening to this podcast knows that reference. Then then yeah, message me. It really whips the llamas off. So, anyways, Winamp. That was the only thing we used to like. We we really knew to use the computer for right solitaire and listening to MP3s. And and the internet was just really becoming a thing. So nobody, again, really knew what it was going to turn into. It felt like there were so many potential opportunities. There was so many possibilities. It almost seemed infinite. You felt like you could go anywhere, do anything. It was like a secret window into a completely different world. And and there was a real pioneering feel about it that I, I think we've lost to some extent now. So back in those days, you didn't have big websites the internet wasn't just a combination of TikTok, Facebook, 
um, and various other things. It was, you know, it was something something amazing that the big corporations largely ignored and underestimated at that point. And and really, it was just a lot of special interest groups that were interested in moving forward, and geeks and nerds, and and, and people like me were just really fascinated by it and intrigued by the possibilities. And you know, I wanted to be part of that revolution. And so the you know that PC that was a gateway, a window into all of that for me. And that's I think the first thing that really sparked my interest in technology. And then how how did you how did you go from having that spark and that interest to getting into actually doing something with that PC because, again, back then, it wasn't as simple as going on your phone, learning how to code, or, like, how did you... That, that sparked your initial interest, but what was it that actually got you to have that bug to think, you know what, this, this is quite cool, I could have a potential life, career, or, or maybe it was just the initial enjoyment that, that sort of got you going and kept you, kept you hooked? Yeah, so... My brother made a deal with somebody at our local Gurdwara. This is this was the first time I'd really properly used a PC for anything um, exciting. And so he, he made a deal with a person at the local Gurdwara, which is a seat temple for people who don't know. And my the deal he made was to build them a website for a certain amount of money. I didn't I didn't know actually how much he was being paid. I don't think I ever found out. I didn't get paid. Um, my brother being the entrepreneur that he yeah, brotherly love. My brother being the entrepreneur that he was, uh, obviously he didn't do work for himself. He convinced me to do it. And and I said yes, mostly because uh yeah, I really wanted to learn how to use this computer. Secondly, because I didn't want him to beat me up and there's some more brotherly love there. Um, but mostly mostly because I I really wanted to learn how to use this computer and, and I wanted to learn how to build websites. And it Actually, that's a bit unfair. To say I wanted to learn how to build websites, was just uh, always been fascinated with taking things apart, learning how things work, getting into the detail of things. And um, I, I guess it was less about building this amazing website, more about I want to learn Dreamweaver, and I want to learn Fireworks, and I want to learn Flash, and I want to learn some JavaScript. And this was back in the days when JavaScript was just JavaScript. Yeah. And so I used these tools to, to, to build out this website. And um, and it just kind of went from there. It was just a fantastic, fantastic experience. It was such a creative uh, outlet for me at the time. And I didn't really have many of those uh, growing up in the area that I grew up in. So that was kind of how it progressed from, you know, seeing this sort of PC window into something amazing and then being part of it and um, teaching myself how to use all these tools to build this website for the local temple. Did, did you then, once you've done that, piece of work for your brother for no cash <laughs> under, under under threat I think from the sounds <laughs> of things um, did you then think do you know what I, like where where did, when did you go from there to did, did you then not touch it for a while or did you get hooked and think do you know what? I want to keep having to play around with this and do it in my own time or or were you just so, waiting for the next piece of work your brother won so I mean that obviously wasn't the end of it we wouldn't wouldn't be having this conversation if it was but but when, to kind of go on a bit of a tangent, when I was younger, I always wanted to be an artist. I used to draw loads, used to read loads of graphic novels. And I genuinely thought that would be my career. That's what I was going to end up doing. But I was the son of first-generation immigrants who came to this country who had absolutely nothing. And I, I grew up in extreme poverty. Money was always at the top, the hierarchy of needs. 
my parents worked really hard to put food on the table. I mean, I started working um, when I was 14 to earn money for the family. So, you know, you can imagine what it was like to my parents going to them and saying, yeah, I, I want to be an artist and uh, that's kind of what I want to do or, or draw graphic novels for the rest of my life. First thing that was going through their head was, well, how are you going to make money? How are you going to do anything in life? How are you going to live? This is this is mad. And again, in those days, the culture, because of the culture, there were there were only really two professions, right? Doctor and lawyer. <laughs> and you must have experienced the same thing because you have a similar cultural background. Yeah. But we, at that age, it was very much so get into a, a profession, a respected profession, like medicine, law, and, and really sort of, Kind of push yourself at school to, to, to learn as much as you can. Now, computer science wasn't even a thing in, in those days. Well, I mean, it was, but, but as a profession, it was well respected as the others. So <clears throat> I, I always wanted to be an artist. I really needed that creative outlet. My parents frowned on it, and they never really encouraged it, and they kept pushing me to other things. So when I built this website, it, it really sparked that creative interest in me. It was that outlet that I needed that I didn't get from drawing and all the other things. And so... I got hooked. Any opportunity to build anything, to code anything, to well, it wasn't coding in those days. It was using complex software to build uh, other software, and um, well, mostly websites in those days or desktop applications. But any opportunity to do that, I I took. So I was doing all my brother's coursework, my brother's homework, and my dad did a fashion course. In, I think it was fashion. I can't remember which one it was exactly, and. He had to learn how to use complex software to, to, to do his fashion course or to do his, his um, qualification. Of course, he didn't. I learned how to use the software, and then I ended up doing all his coursework. And um, I'm, I'm sure and he, he got a distinction as a result of doing that, um, which was all my work, really. I got a distinction. And if I, there's probably some fashion lecturer somewhere out there that owes me a distinction in fashion design. I should probably look into that. So uh, that was kind of that was kind of um, how I got hooked, and 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 yeah, I, I couldn't stop after that. I saw it really creatively, but but it wasn't really until I got to uni that it started to evolve. So using tools like Fireworks, Fireworks and Flash and Dreamweaver to build websites is very different to general coding, and I didn't get the coding bug until I got to university. So again, I got I got forced into doing. You know, maths, science, um, um, economics, uh, A-level, computer science, and, you know, because it all sounded like interesting subjects to my parents. And so when I went to university, the only thing that was available to me was computer science. And I had a really tough time at university. And I, I didn't really enjoy coding as much as I thought I would. And I didn't enjoy computer science as much as I thought I would. Uh, and it didn't, it took a lot of time, a lot of effort, um, and I went to actually have a psychological. Was that just sorry? Was that just because of um, it was so different from a creative doing your own thing to being in a classroom? Learning yeah. that, what was it that you, you you found sort of difficult? It was it was a couple of things. Yeah, you touched on it there. Coding back then was so abstract, abstracted from what it is now. So nowadays, it's quite easy to build you know, a couple of functions to get a website up and running that a customer can interact with, a user can interact with. And it's quite easy to put together, you know, a few screens to build a mobile app. But back then, there were so many layers of abstraction with sort of 
what we what we knew was coding. What we did was coding, and you know what uh, customers saw uh, and what you could build so that, that would be useful to customers at the end of it. And I really, I don't know, I really struggled with those abstractions. The other thing is I had some learning difficulties that I didn't realize. I had some ADHD and dyslexia, and um, it took a while for me to realize. And I finally got put in touch with an educational psychologist who, who, who told me what was happening and uh, put me in touch with a tutor who completely changed things for me. And he helped me realize actually how creative it could be. And it went from, I mean, my grades were terrible. My grades were, when I first went to uni, you know, I was resetting every exam. I was averaging 35, 37% to suddenly going 90, 95% to the point where one of the one of the exams, they thought I was cheating. So they got me to come in to do the exam in front of the lecturer or head of department and prove that I knew what I was talking about, that it wasn't just me cheating in the exam. And yeah, that, that complete shift and that change in focus came from a lecturer, a, a tutor, who spent the time to understand how I learned things, how I you know, how my brain operated and showed me how, one, how to, to study, one, to learn, but also how creative coding could be. And it wasn't just a load of abstractions that didn't really, really mean anything. You know, if you, it was about having these building blocks, these really basic primitive building blocks that could be arranged in a number of different ways to solve a particular problem in a number of different ways. And, and a common misconception that a lot of people have about coding and misconception that I had was it's black and white, it's ones and zeros. There's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. But you can't be further from the truth. Cannot be further from the truth. And I talk a lot about this when I talk about the value of an engineer. But there's so many different ways to solve a particular problem. Partly it's about the trade-offs that you need to make. And those trade-offs are going to be specific to the context you're in. But also part of it is down to your kind of uh, abilities, your understanding, you know, what you have um, to your, um, you know, available to yourself at that particular point in time. And so, yeah, I really learned how creative it could be. And it started to spark the interest again. And I started to get into it again. And uh, it, it just kind of continued from there. And then you studied in Liverpool, is that right? That's correct, yes. Um, how did you find, because I'm guessing qualifying with a computer degree back then versus now would have been very different, but how was your journey then from education into the working world right then? That was that was intense. So I went from, you know, a ghetto in East London to Liverpool, and largely for the time when I was in uni, I was... It was mostly student culture as opposed to, you know, sort of Liverpool, the Scouts culture. And largely insulated from, I suppose, the real world, if you want to call it that. So it was a real shock to the system when I finally graduated and I started looking for jobs. And I'd worked really hard in the last few years of my degree. And I thought, right, as soon as I go out, there's going to be a ton of opportunities, a ton of jobs. But it really wasn't, really wasn't like that. It's not like it is now. It just wasn't the abundance of technology jobs as there are right now. Software engineers were like the bottom of the rung. You know, they were really sort of low level. And 
you know, there were no organizations like Tech Nation, Tech Returners, Code Nation, et cetera, et cetera. The yeah. recruiters and the recruitment ecosystem isn't what it is now. So you, it was harder to go to somebody and say, oh, I want a job in such and such. Plus, I had no experience. So I really struggled to find work after uni. I was getting thrown out of my student house. I remember I had to couch surf. I had like 10, 15 pounds to my name, and I had, like, I spent one pound of that to get a trolley, to steal a trolley from Asda, so that I could <laughs> put, I put all my stuff in this Asda trolley. And I used to wheel it around my friends' houses, and I used to couch surf. And it's crazy when I think about it now. It's like mad, but you know, the things that you do when you're a student or when you graduate. <clears throat> and then I, um, I decided, you know, I'm not the kind of person that would just sit around and wait for something to happen. I decided I was going to do some voluntary work to help build up the experience. Because that was the biggest problem at the time. I want a job, um, but I can't get a job without experience. But I can't get experience without a job. Cash 22. So I decided to work for the Roy Castle Lung Cancer Foundation based in Liverpool. And it, I did anything and everything, everything, managing websites, fixing laptops, and even something that's completely unrelated to what I ended up doing, you know, researching patrons people who would be interested in donating to the charity that might have some, some sort of relation to or had some experience with cancer or had some relatives who have been, had cancer. Um, and then also helping build up business cases for primary care trusts. Um, so I got involved in loads of different things. And through networking, I got my first proper job at Littlewoods. And funny enough, a lot of the, a lot of the, Voluntary work I did really helped help me secure my first job at, at Little Words. And it wasn't even just the experience, but I think they were really impressed by the fact that I took the voluntary work in, in the first place and you know didn't settle for just sitting around. I think they were quite impressed with, with sort of my approach and, and my outlook. But also the person I was speaking to, uh, their grandfather was a uh, sort of benefited from some of the work that the Roy Castle Lung Cancer Foundation did. So again, that would be in good stead. And, um, and yeah, that was my, my first ever temp role um, as a software engineer for Liverpool. And I'll, I'll never forget that because that was, <laughs> that was the interview where they accidentally took me to Pizza Hut for a birthday celebration. How, what, what, how did that come about? So, so it's, it's a funny, funny. Well, I think it's a funny story. I'm going to say it, and it's going to be completely unfunny. I I went to the interview, and the person who was interviewing me it was their birthday, and he, he he asked me a load of questions, and then he left the room. And when he left the room, one of his colleagues came in. He thought I was an employee, or he thought it was my first day, and he said, "Oh, we're celebrating Phil, the person who's doing the interview, his birthday. We're all going to Pizza Hut." Uh, we're going to present him with a card, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll go pizza up as soon as he's back. But I, I didn't have a chance to say anything. I was a bit confused. So I just went along with it. And he came, Phil came back, and then everyone surprised him. And and they carried him out to pizza hut. And I kind of followed them. And then we sat, <laughs> yeah, we sat in pizza hut for two hours eating lunch. And everyone was talking to me like, like I was an employee. I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what was going on. I just sat there eating eating pizza. I mean, it was great. I was a poor, broke, hungry student. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't going to say anything. But then it came to paying the bill and everyone was splitting pot, everyone was putting money in. 
And then Phil suddenly looked at my way and he realized, he goes, bloody hell, don't make jazz pay because he's just coming for an interview. And everyone collectively was like, oh, right, I get it. So that was... <laughs> And that's, that's, that's a good way to get a job, though. Jump on a jump on a, a celebration of a staff member. Oh yeah, totally, totally played with the coaches. The funny part was, though, everyone realised something was something was off, but nobody really knew it. It was just funny everyone's reaction after they found out. But that was that was my first ever software engineering interview. I don't think it'd be really hard to top that. Yeah, <laughs> I've had an interview since, but but that was at Littlewoods. That was a temporary job. And then from there? So um, from Littlewoods, my... So what I was doing in the temp job was mostly um, working on the catalogs. So Littlewoods were a mail order company back in the day, and they were going through a digital transformation. But a large part of what they did was sending catalogs to people's houses, and they would browse those catalogs for products and the catalogue would contain information not only about the product, but potential finance options, et cetera, et cetera. And for people like me and you, that's how we used to do it before all these e-commerce companies came along. And so um, the catalogues, the, the, what we called the galleries, which were, so you had an image and a load of descriptions. I was, was responsible for styling the galleries. And this was based on you know, Java, Servlets, uh, Velocity style sheet templates, what they've done is build a proprietary engine for somebody to code a style sheet using Velocity to organize the, the look and feel of those descriptions and the order of those descriptions. And it was an was excruciating, painful job because I didn't really have access to a debugger or any proper testing tools. There were very limited things you could do to generate a preview and the even the previews that we did generate took like 10 minutes and it wasn't the proper preview. The only way you could see what it would really look like was to print a physical copy and that would take an hour, a couple of hours. And so it was, it was horrendous. It was really difficult. And you really had to know what you were doing. You really had to pay attention to every single line of code. Um, but yeah, I did that for six months. And then I started looking for permanent role somewhere else. Well, actually, a permanent role found me somewhere else. And I was going to leave. I went to my boss and I said, look, I actually like this job. I like the environment. For one, it was indoors. And all my jobs had been outdoors. You know, I'd worked in the market school, Jesus, since I was 14. So being in an office was brilliant. And my boss said, you know, thanks. This has been great. Uh, we didn't expect you to last six months. Most people in your role don't last more than two months. So thanks for, thanks for staying. And I was thinking, damn. If only I'd known that. <laughs> you know, I just thought I was a rubbish program. Imposter syndrome. We'll come back to that later. Yeah. Um, and so he offered me a permanent job. And then I became a proper true developer. And I did uh, I did some other really cool stuff. I built a sandwich ordering system where employees could go to a website, uh, order a sandwich that would then get sent via a printing system, a printing system batch job that I developed to print a label. The catering staff would then take that, make the sandwich, and then make sure it was available to the internal employees when they came to pay. The reason they did that was because loads of people were just queuing up the canteen for their sandwiches, and most people wouldn't bother to queue and they'd go elsewhere. So this helped reduce the queues, and it made the canteen shed loads of money. And so they loved me, and I got loads of free sandwiches, but it was also a really popular system internally. And 
when when they used to have outages, usually people would submit tickets or the IT team to get the systems back online. And the sandwich ordering system was the one system people was the most highly had a prioritized and requesting system people would ask to go back online when it would go offline. And I was quite proud of that. Quite proud of having built something that people love to use and had a really positive business impact. And then and then from there, you did how long was it until you started to see those opportunities for leadership? Because I know from my conversation with you, you've always been very techie, very hands-on. So did you, was it just natural? Did you have an aspiration to go, do you know what? I'd love to lead teams. I'd love to, I'd love to uh, lead a potential business. Or was it something that just the opportunity came about without you even sort of forcing or pushing that? Oh, I, I never, I never wanted to be in leadership. I, I just wanted to be a techie. I didn't see myself as a natural leader, didn't consider myself as a particularly good leader. And also, you know, up to, up to now, I, I don't think I'm surrounded by very many good tech leaders. And I've since found, you know, that's actually the norm for a lot of people in my situation. I, I just don't think as an industry, we're doing enough or, or done enough to build good technical leaders. But I mean, that side, me personally, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to be a leader. And after a little bit, I got headhunted to work at Transactors. I, that was more of a DevOps role. So I got involved in loads of different things. The tech stack was a bit of PHP, C, Java, Java Swing, desktop applications, Adobe Flex, Adobe Air for the people who remember Flex. God, I used to love Flex. I got pushed into, I, I, I built a lot of really cool stuff and I was responsible for one member of staff. We got some really cool things. And I was very well thought of by a lot of people in the company and a lot of the other engineers. And so the IT director in that company decided to make me head of engineering or head of development. And I, I didn't really want to, but I did the typical developer thing of, well, the only way I can progress, because back in those days, you didn't have uh, ways to progress as an individual contributor. You couldn't, if you wanted to earn more money and become more senior, you had to get into management. So I reluctantly agreed. And I mean, Charity Majors, if you've ever heard of her, she's, she's written a lot about the engineer and manager of Pendulum, some fantastic articles. I highly recommend, highly recommend anyone who's listening to this to read uh, those articles. She's a fantastic writer. Um, but I, I was the victim of the engineer and manager Pendulum, and I didn't realize at the time, but it was the only way I could progress my career. So I decided to take it on board. And yeah, I became head of development for a period of time at this company called Transactus, which was a printing company, and then they got bought over by a data company. And they were doing some really sort of great things and dynamic things and forward thinking things. And I had, um, not the head of my, not the IT director, but I had a, or the former IT director, was a great, great guy. And, and I, I had snippets of good leadership in my career. And I remember one time, the former, well, he was former head of IT, a guy called Paul Rigby, fantastic guy, completely non-technical. But I remember going to him with a particular problem. Well, it was, it was a, a website that I built, an internal application that I built to manage projects in the business. It was a project register. And he, he gave me some feedback and he absolutely tore the work to shreds 
just completely destroyed it. And my heart just sank because I've got so much time and effort into this project. And, um, but he was really constructive about it. And he was very clear with two things. First of all, I'm giving you feedback about the work. That's not about you as a person. Okay, so don't take it personally. Secondly, I'm being constructive and brutal because I care about you and I want you to do well. And I didn't realize at the time that what he was doing was he was giving me radical feedback, right? radical candor. Mm-hmm. And again, that's a great book. If, if, if you've never read it before, I highly recommend you read it. But he was so good at giving that feedback. And it really stuck with me ever since then, you know, how, you, how important it is to give feedback and a really important tool in the leader's arsenal, a really important skill in any leader who's giving that feedback. But I didn't see that as me. I didn't, I thought, no, there's no way I could do that. But, but I got, you know, pushed into leadership. I got pushed into that head of development role and I ended up doing that for a period of time. And then I'm guessing, I'm not guessing, I know the answer to this, but the landscape for the Northwest and in particular Manchester, the tech scene right now is just so buoyant. It's so competitive. It's up there with some of the best in Europe at the moment. But I'm guessing back then the opportunities were probably few and far between. And what what led you to that next opportunity, which I'm, I'm thinking is that, was that when you, you sort of headed over to Stagecoach from there? Yeah, so that was quite an interesting journey. And you're right, you're absolutely right. The tech scene just was not the same back then. There were a few big companies in and around the Northwest. Liverpool was nowhere near where it was in Manchester. And Manchester was nowhere near where it was now. Back then, you had BBC, Orchard Trade, and a few digital media companies, and that's it. Anyone who was particularly good, came from Auto Trader in those days. They were like the sought-after engineers. Auto Trader were the company to have in your CV. So there weren't options to move around. But at the same time, I was a lot. I was living in Liverpool at the time. A lot of my friends from university had left, and I really wasn't enjoying head of development. I really it just wasn't for me. And I, I was starting to realise I'm not. I'm not a leader. I'm not a manager. I can't do this. So I decided to leave and go back into a more technical role, go back and work as an individual contributor. My plan was to actually go to San Francisco. I'd applied for a H-1B visa. I'd moved all my stuff to London. Well, I was in the process of applying. I was um, moved all my stuff to London. And then I got a call from a friend of mine who was based in Manchester. Well, he was based in, or he was working in Manchester at the time for Stagecoach. And he said, okay, come over, you know, come work with me at Stagecoach. We've got this project that we're working on. I'll tell you more about it. It's, you know, two to three months work. Might be some more after that. But just do this for a bit and then you can go to San Francisco. And the reason I wanted to go to San Francisco was I was so really into that startup culture. I really, I suppose, like a lot of people at my, in my field at that particular point in time in history, you know, everything was about the startup, everything was about dot com, everything was about the next big thing. And so San Francisco for me was the center of all of that. And that's where I wanted to be. And that's what I wanted to be a part of. And so I thought, okay, I'll do this for two, three months in Manchester, and then I'll go off to work um, for some startup in some plan. Great. Of course, it didn't work out like that. Yeah. Um, 
Bloody hell, yeah. I, I joined Stagecoach and that two, three months turned into God, what was it, six years? That what that that was some some journey as well at the time because Stagecoach um did back then that that's when I first started hearing about yourself and it was mainly because I'd heard about all the good work of stagecoach, the type of talent they were attracting, the way the teams were working. But talk us through that entering stagecoach as a <clears throat> technical person to what that developed into and then your role there and how, how that continued to evolve as well. So at stagecoach, there were kind of two main areas, if you like, two main sort of time frames. There was the first bit where we'd been brought in to reverse engineer an application that was owned by Stagecoach but managed by a third party. This was a system or a set of systems that we've discovered that actually ran a lot of the business and functions and were really critical to what they did. The problem was the third party did not have to scale the application. And it was costing Stagecoach a huge amount of money, month on month, year on year, they were running something like 42, 45 odd servers for this one application in order to keep it scaling and prevent it from falling apart. And it would constantly fall over. So as a then forward-thinking group IT director, he decided, no, we can't have this. And he, he brought in my then boss to build out a team to reverse engineer some of these core systems. We called it a Black Ops team because we're a bunch of geeks and we're really sad Nothing of it interesting happens in our lives, so we'll call it Black Ops. And we came in and we had to work in the city centre office in Manchester. We couldn't tell anyone what we were working on. We had two or three people that we were allowed to talk to about the idea. And um, we had to pick really silly project names and obscure email addresses so nobody would find out. And then, and then we, we managed to do it. Right? We managed to reverse engineer these systems in, in, in record time. I was responsible for the software side, actually the product side as well after a time because one of the BAs had left. Um, so I was responsible for, this, for building out the software for some of these systems and also, I suppose, putting together the product vision, what it could look like, what the business wanted, how that would work. And we did it in, in record time. And the business was extremely happy. We managed to get off this supplier. And we had this extremely scalable solution that they were then able to build their business and continue to see growth and had a massive impact on revenue, massive impact on cost. And now suddenly the business has a huge amount more agility. So they were really excited and happy. And they asked some of us to go permanent. And so that was really the first era of Stagecoach. And we continued on for the period of time after that as a permanent team. And the second era was my boss at the time he was effectively our CTO and the person who brought me in, he decided to leave the organization. He decided to move on somewhere else. And the team wasn't in a particularly great state at this point. They were struggling in terms of their place in, in Stagecoach. Stagecoach was going through a bit of an identity crisis because the likes of Uber and a lot of on-demand bus services were showing up. So Stagecoach had to make a decision about where they wanted to go, what they needed to do, and who was going to go on that journey with them. And the team in Manchester at the time, we were like 30, 40 odd people with 30 or so contractors on top. And, you know, quite frankly, Stagecoach wasn't sure whether they wanted to keep that team or whether they wanted to disband. 
the Manchester team and build out elsewhere. So we we had a bit of a, a sort of a, a kind of a baptism of fire, a sort of a test of like where they we had to replatform one of our, our core systems, the Megabus uh, website, and all of the back-end systems to support the Megabus website. And this was a system that served UK, Europe, North America, that brought in a huge amount of revenue. And it was interdepartmental. It was a really important project. And we managed to deliver in, in record time, I think three to four months, replatform the entire backend systems from an on-prem to a cloud-based solution. So replatform to infrastructure was code on AWS at the time. So it was mostly built on Java Spring. The front-end stuff was .NET with Cycle, and we had some sort of admin-type systems that were also .NET Cycle at the time. And we did it in record time. And again, you know, the, the team managed to prove itself. And Brian Coburn, the, the IT director, someone, you know, really forward-thinking guy, someone who I would consider as a mentor, you know, he saw the value of what we were doing. And he saw how the team was starting to build and, and, and you know, how the team was, was, was performing. And, you know, we'd gone from being an awesome bunch of contractors to a perm team to not doing particularly well to then suddenly finding our feet and really pushing things forward and innovating again. And so, yeah, the business was really happy and, and then decided to heavily invest in the team again. They, they, they doubled, trebled the investment, brought more people in, gave us a bigger budget, got us offices in the city centre. Again, a huge success. And, um, and it was pretty mad the way that we turned that around um, and pretty mad the way that we... We, we built a really positive culture after having gone through a, bit, a, a period of real uncertainty. And during that time, time was for the first part, the first era, I was basically an individual contributor. And yeah, okay, I led the team, but more as a tech lead. The second time around when my boss left, the group IT director, Brian Coburn, asked me to, you know, just hold the reins while they found something on a permanent basis. He'd actually asked me to take the role. And I said, no, not for me, not interested. I just want to be an engineer. And he said, okay, well, look, I'm in a difficult position. Why don't you hold the reins? We'll find someone else. And then at that point, you know, if you want, to, if you want an opportunity in the organization, there'll be opportunities there for you as an individual contributor. Or if you want to go and work somewhere else, you know, totally support that, more than happy. But I, you know, I, I held the reins for a period of time. I kept things going for a period of time. And I really started to enjoy it. And I had a great team around me, really good bunch of people that were extremely supportive, extremely brought in, very passionate, very good at what they did. And it made the whole process so much easier. And, and what I realized as well, in, you know, I had, had a strong team around me, uh, below me, and I had a really good boss in Brian. And I realized it doesn't have to be rubbish. It doesn't have to be difficult, bad, when you've got good support, good leadership. Um, it could be, you know, it could work really, really well. And at the time as well, and I know you know Pete Cameron, Neil Myland, both of them came into the organization and, you know, I got a lot of support from, from those two as well, two people I highly, highly respect. And I got the bug. And it just went from being a, this thing that I just had to do to a thing I wanted to do. And I realized 
doing things, solving problems on your own, achieving a goal, achieving success on your own, or contributing to something on your own. It's good fun, it's great, but getting a team together, getting them focused, trying to achieve something, especially when it's difficult or impossible, especially when the odds are against you and you succeed, there's no other feeling like that. I mean, yeah, I haven't been able to find something else which is the same. And it's so invigorating, so satisfying. I never look back on management since then. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trusted Tech Talks podcast with me, Manny, and my guest speaker, Jazz Chana, Technology Director for Cinch. To hear the rest of Jazz's story, make sure you tune in next time. Don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and Spotify and subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss another episode. If you want to discuss the topic further, have follow-up questions, or are looking for a brand new role yourself, please get in touch via email or LinkedIn.